So I got to take you back in history to the 1970s when BMX was invented uh, in Southern California. So when the bicycle was invented, people naturally wanted to start doing tricks and jumping in and doing things like that, but they weren't necessarily racing it. So freestyle was kind of the first uh, sport that kind of, it wasn't even a sport back then, but I guess the first thing that evolved from just riding your bike from point A to point B. From there, in the 1970s, motorcycle racing kind of took off. And so kids in Southern California would grab their bikes and they would try to kind of mimic what they saw their favorite motorcycle racers doing. They would build out a little course, a little track, some jumps, some turns, and then start holding races. And then over time, you know, they started doing official races with a certain number of riders and a certain track and it just kind of grew from there um, and then in 2005 the international olympic committee uh, voted to include bmx racing in the olympics starting with 2008 and we were the first action sport that was added to the summer games and it was kind of off the back of the success that the snowboard halfpipe and some of the extreme sports of the winter games had they were trying to figure out what they could do as an action sport for the summer games. So we were, I guess, the test run. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout Living It. Today we are with Connor Fields, who is a gold medalist in the Olympics in BMX, a three-time Olympic three-time Olympian, uh, two-time world champion, but also suffered the worst accident at the Tokyo Games, a scary, traumatic brain injury. Connor, welcome. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Looking forward to this. This is going to be fine. Can, can you tell me a bit more about BMX? So I, I, did, I did a bunch of research, and, and it looks like it's one lap, 300 to 400 meters uh, in and around like 40 seconds as, so, far as, as far as a race is concerned? You're correct. Um, that is the Olympic style. So I got to take you back in history to the 1970s when BMX was invented uh, in Southern California. So when the bicycle was invented, people naturally wanted to start doing tricks and jumping in and doing things like that, but they weren't necessarily racing it. So freestyle was kind of the first uh, sport that kind of, it wasn't even a sport back then, but I guess the first thing that evolved from just riding your bike from point A to point B. Um, from there in the 1970s, motorcycle racing kind of took off. And so kids in Southern California would grab their bikes and they would try to kind of mimic what they saw their favorite motorcycle racers doing. They would build out a little course, a little track, some jumps, some turns, and then start holding races. And then over time, you know, they started doing uh, official races with a certain number of riders and a certain track. And it just kind of grew from there. Um, and then in 2005, the International Olympic Committee uh, voted to include BMX racing in the Olympics, starting with 2008. And we were the first action sport that was added to the summer games. And it was kind of off the back of the success that the snowboard halfpipe and some of the extreme sports of the winter games had. They were trying to figure out what they could do as an action sport for the summer games. So we were, I guess, the test run. Um, Olympic level BMX has 
kind of standards where the track has to be a certain length. It has to be a certain width. The starting hill has to be a certain size. But part of what makes BMX so much fun is that everywhere you go, anywhere in the world, every track is different. And so when I see swimmers or track and, track and field athletes who do the same thing over and over and over and over again, every time I go race, it's a different course. And that's always one thing that I've really enjoyed. Um, but at the Olympic level, you are correct. Tracks are usually around 350 to 400 meters. Um, they're typically a minimum of three turns. Starting hill has to be uh, eight meters tall is the height of the starting hill. And it has to be a certain width. Um, but we do race at all sorts of different tracks that are all different sizes and shapes. Now, this will be appropriate later on. The surface is not necessarily dirt either, right? Traditionally, in the, in going back again in history, it was always dirt. Right. And then in the 90s, like late 90s, they started building some turns out of asphalt. And that was done to minimize the amount of work and maintenance that had to be done on it. Uh, and from there, people realized, well, if you do that, you can actually go faster and it's less work for us. The riders enjoy it because they can go faster. They can turn sharper. And so then it changed and asphalt corners kind of became the norm. From there, they started taking the dirt and then sealing it with a form of a sealant. And that has a number of reasons they do that. One is it minimizes dust. Two is it seals it in so if it rains, the water just brushes off. So from a maintenance perspective, it could have this huge storm and your track's gonna be completely fine. Um, and then again, that makes us go faster. So over time, it has changed to where like at the Olympics, the turns are made of asphalt and the track, while still made of dirt, have a sealant on them to help with the, the weather. Like CalMag kind of thing or something like that, like that kind of sealant? Or I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, the couple of things that I've heard used are soil tack and mm -hmm. slurry. And so what it basically is, if you go pour a bottle of water on it, it'll just run straight off and it won't sink in. And is it more tacky too? It's definitely, I mean, I describe it as a cheese grater. If you fall on it, it feels like a cheese grater. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, because I'm looking at this and I'm trying to figure out because if you're going 40 seconds and, and say it's 40 seconds and, and 400 meters, that's similar in some ways to, uh, to like a runner, right? So Van Niekerk, his world record for the 400 meters is 43.03. Yeah, I mean, so we, we have the jumps and everything, but it's from a training perspective, it's, it's somewhere in between like a two and a 400 the way we train. So it's a sprint. There's no pacing yourself whatsoever. You just go all out and just kind of hang on. Um, but you have to have the conditioning similar to a 400 meter sprinter where you can sprint essentially for 40 seconds. And then you have to have the explosiveness off the start, like a hundred meter sprinter, because it's a lot easier to win a race from the front. But in addition to that, you have to have the mentality and the courage of like a UFC fighter because you get knocked down, you crash, you get injured and then you have to jump right back in the ring and the track will always hit harder than you um but then at the same time you have to have the the balance and the coordination of a gymnast as you're jumping 50 foot jumps going 40 miles an hour with seven other athletes around you in close quarters and you're having to land basically on this tiny little section that you have to land on 
while also keeping an eye on this rider over here and where they're going, where this rider over here is going, what the wind is doing, and there's like all this different stuff that's going on. So from a training perspective, it's really tough because you have to be good at so many different things. It's full body, upper body, lower body, um, you know, explosive, but endurance, balance, you know, fearlessness, like there's a lot going on. And on top of that, there's all the additional variables that a lot of sports don't have. We have a bicycle, so there's a piece of machinery. So if you get a flat tire, like there's nothing you did wrong, but you know, there's a piece of machinery. How are you gonna set it up? Are you gonna have the bars, what height are you gonna have? What gear ratio are you gonna run? What PSI are you gonna run in your tires? And so there's so many variables, there's so many things that could go wrong that I, I truly believe, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to any other sport, we are one of the hardest Olympic medals to win because so many things have to go right. And the fastest rider doesn't always win. Now, if you look at a hundred meter sprint or a swimming event, the fastest athlete, if they execute, they don't mess up, they'll win. Not how it works for us. You can be the fastest athlete and have a mechanical. You can be the fastest athlete and get taken down by another rider. There's so many other things that could happen. Well, the mechanical is interesting because I was looking at it in terms of like short track versus long track speed skating, where it's similar in some ways to what you guys do, where, where it's sort of like a, a sprint and then, and then you've got your jump, right? Then you've got like a technical element, then it's a massive sprint, then it's a technical, whereas like a, like a long track is a, is a more consistent, you know, you're, you're an engine, you've turned yourself into an engine. Right. Where you guys are like this ballistic, massive sprint, and then, and then do something. And then mass and, and like look out for somebody else or whatever. Plus you have, you have all those elements and you have the mechanical part of it what's the exhaustion like? Cause like even just thinking about a 400 meters, like 400 meters, when you come off of that last turn, that last hundred meters is really hard. Suddenly it seems like everything's really good. And then you come off the last hundred meters and it can be really hard. What's that like for you at the finish line and sort of, is there any way of measuring? Your heart rate is completely maxed. Like you have completely gone to exhaustion like max, like 200 beats per minute kind of thing? 220 minus your age, essentially, if you want to use the traditional calculation. But yeah, I mean, I'll hit um, 195 to 200 based on what's going on. But with us, and we always kind of laugh and, and joke with our friends who are 100 meter sprinters, they'll do one race a day and then they'll have three days off and they'll do another. And for us at the Olympics, it's only four, but at a World Cup event, it can be up to eight races in a day. So essentially ask a 400 meter sprinter to go do eight races in a day. And so what happens at the Olympics or at other events, as soon as you cross the finish line, your heart rate is maxed, you're exhausted, your legs are on fire, like you've, you've run the risk of cramping. You've got 30 minutes until the next gate drops. So the challenge is to just completely get your heart rate back down, spin your legs out, flush the lactic acid, hydrate, take a bite of the power bar if you can, and go again. And so we have to train for that repeatability to, to produce max power out of the starting blocks, but also to be able to have the endurance to just go again and again and again and again and again. And then on top of that, when you arrive at the event, you have a set number, a set number of hours, a certain amount of time that you have to ride the course and every course is different. So part of the game 
is to dial in the course and figure out the fastest lines, the fastest way to hit a jump, figure out how it's going to send you off the takeoff, et cetera. And you've got three hours to do that. And then the next day you start racing. And you have to do that at speed when you're checking the course, because if you're not doing it at speed, you're not in the place to figure out what's going exactly on. Exactly what's going to happen. Exactly. And so sometimes depending on the rider, yeah. like, national teams will work together in practice they'll ride together and they'll mimic kind of race situations to see how what's going to happen if i do this and somebody else does that where's the passing points what am i going to do here what am i going to do there um but there's like the more i i, I the older i get the more i think about it, the more i realize there are so many things that you have to be able to do and i i guess it would be similar to like golf right and not on the physical side but it's, you have to be good at 15 different things and if you're bad at one of them, you're going to be in trouble. If you can't putt, it doesn't matter how good you can try. And so I guess for us, it's like you if you can't figure out a course in that amount of time, you're not even going to be able to race well because you won't know the course. If you can figure out that course, but you don't have the endurance to go all day long, you're going to start well, but you're going to die off. Yeah, there's so many different levels of things that you have to be good at. What's the mental side like? The mental exhaustion because – you said you finish and then you have 30 minutes in between heats effectively. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, but it's just like, everything's coming at you all at once. And you're trying to figure out, okay, I've got to make sure I hit the downslope on that so that I can, so I can utilize that momentum and gain some more speed. And so you're, you've got the, you against the course, but you against the other seven people all crammed into this course, what's the mental side and how do you kind of turn it off? So, I mean, the, the exhaustion mentally, like you get to the end of the day and you are completely wrecked. Like, I feel as if I just tried to, I don't know, <clears throat> do some homework for a class I'm not qualified to do for six hours, right? Like, you just are completely mentally exhausted along with physical exhaustion. But yes, I mean, there is an inherent risk in what we do. And all of us are, I guess, daredevils to an extent. But we've all known people to get injured. We've all been injured ourselves, broken arms or collarbones or ankles or whatever. And every time you sit up there, you know that that's a chance that that's going to happen. So you're kind of fighting against your natural instinct. You're turning your instinct off and then just going. And I found that to get harder as I got older. When you're 18, you don't think twice, you just go. Um, And I, I actually spoke to my sports psychologist about it. What he was telling me was how the part of the brain uh, that analyzes risk doesn't fully develop in males till their mid-20s. Hence the reason why 18-year-old guys oftentimes make bad decisions and go 100 miles an hour on, on their neighborhood street or you know, whatever it is that they're doing. But I, I like witnessed that because when I was 18, I didn't think twice. When I was 20, I didn't think twice. When I was 23, I started thinking a little bit. When I was 28, I was like, this is a bad idea. I'm going to do it, but this is a bad idea. Um, and it was just kind of funny to watch that evolve. And physically, as you know, you, you reach your peak in your late twenties or early thirties from a physical standpoint. And I felt that like going into Tokyo, I was 28 years old and I felt I'd never been in better physical shape, but I'm having to compete against 19 and 20 year olds who are willing. They're not necessarily willing to die, but like, they don't think twice about maybe they will, like they do not care. And I do. And so that was what kind of the, the change is. And that, I think, is why BMX is a young man's sport. Not so much the physical side, but just the mental side of being able to not think twice about the decisions you're about to make. 
does that, because that slows you down, right? I mean, even, even just that momentary little synapse or whatever it is, it's like that slows you down just that little bit of like, ooh, this could be, this could be a bad, bad point as opposed to like, let's do what we have to do as opposed to processing any of the risk or the fear or the worry. Is that what you were feeling a bit as you went into Tokyo? Or is that what you just said to say, that happens, I have to manage it? I mean, I, I personally did the second thing. Like I would have to just acknowledge that the risk is there and then just go. Um, <clears throat> but what ends up happening usually to the older athletes is they might not go for a gap that's there. And you're constantly making decisions as you go around the track uh, or in a racing situation. You're kind of doing probability in your mind, like very quickly. Like you're processing the probability in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, there's a 90% chance that if I make this move, that it'll stick. 10% chance that I'm going to crash myself and this other athlete. And typically when you're making those decisions, when it's a 90 to 10, you take it, you do it. But then as you get a little bit older, you start saying, oh, there's a 10% chance that it's not going to work. I'm just going to hold back and take second place. And that's kind of where people stop going for those gaps that aren't there. And it's not just in our sport. I think other sports, it's the same thing. You don't send it past that point of no return quite as often when you hit a little bit of an older age. Right. And it might be a semis versus a finals or whatever. Exactly. You got hooked at seven years old. What hooked you about BMX? Because you stopped playing all the other sports too, right? At about 10, I stopped playing other sports. But I think for me, I liked a couple of things. First off, I always liked the adrenaline rush and, and I didn't even know what it was when I was 10 years old. But I just like jumping and I like, you know, having fun. And like, that was what was exciting to me. And, you know, hitting a ball off of a tee, a tee ball wasn't exciting to me, like jumping my bike off, off of ramps or, you know, going 25 miles an hour in a race was exciting to me. Is this risk related? Was it the risk that was exciting, the 25 miles an hour, the, the big jumps? I don't know. I, I think it's one of maybe, I have no idea. I mean, I was 10, but. Perhaps it's one of those things where once you've done that exciting, fun stuff that really makes you feel alive, you don't want to go back to the other side when you're 10. Now, when you're 30, now I'm happy to go golf. Like, that's fine with me. Like, you know, maybe I'll have a sore back at the end of the day, but like, that's fine. Different kind of t-ball. Okay. Yeah. But the other thing I think too is I was always hyper competitive and I enjoyed that BMX racing was an individual sport. And when you're 10 years old or eight years old, not very many sports that you do are individual. You do a lot of team sports. You do basketball, you do soccer, you do t-ball, you do fly football. And I would get frustrated because I'd be playing harder than everybody else. And so my parents tried to steer me into an, an individual sport because then I could kind of get out what I was trying to get out. And their thought process was give them a few more years. And once everybody's 13, 14, 15 years old, you'll start getting to where everybody's trying that hard or you get into high school and every, the guys who try hard are the starters. And then you get to college and everybody tries hard. But I just was hooked on the individual aspect of it. And who knows, had they steered me into running track and field or something where it's also an individual sport, like maybe that would have stuck. But I think it was just kind of this perfect storm of what I enjoyed to do, individual sport. And I mean, let's face it, like BMX is cool. Right. Like, like when you're growing, it's, it's, it's 
bright colors. It's, you know, fancy sponsors. It, it's cool. Like they, when you're a kid, you're looking at the pros and they're all, you know, got hot chicks and, and all that stuff. And it's like, that's cool. I want to do that. So that's probably part of it too. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's an artistic side of it. I mean, I keep thinking as you were talking like early on, like Dogtown and Z-Boy kind of thing, like the skateboarding stuff coming out of California, but then also the, the creative part of, of the sport that, that is different. What did you, what did you do well? Like, did you, did you start doing something, whether it was jumps, whether it was turns, whether it was sprinting, what did you do well? I would say like I was really naturally inclined, like what I was really good at was just my, as a broad term, skills on the bike, like my skill. And where I lacked was in my physical capabilities. So more athletes have physical tools and struggle at the skill side of things. Um, I was the other way around. And that's what you want is somebody who is technically very sound. They have a good connection with the bike where they're almost one with the bike. They can you know, read and react and know exactly where they are in relation to the track in relation to the bike. They can put their bike exactly where they want it. But I would always get beat off the starting blocks because I was small and scrawny and weak. So as I got older, um, that's the way you want it. Cause now all I have to go do is dedicate the time and energy and effort to building up strength and strength and conditioning. And now I've already got all the technical tools. Now I just had to build physical tools. And it's a lot easier to build up the physical tools than it is to improve your natural ability of riding a bicycle. So like your bike handling skills, like Tour de France, they talk about it, like a Peter Sagan who came from mountain biking and is, is one of the guys who's just amazing in the pack. And you watch those guys sprint at the end and it's all like bike handling skills at 40 plus. Right. Exactly. That was what I was always good at. Yeah. And BMX, um, there's a lot of athletes in road cycling, velodrome, mountain biking that come from a BMX background. Um, multiple, I, I mean, I was hanging out at the Olympics with a mountain biker from Team USA who I used to race BMX with when we were kids. And when he was like 14, he transitioned to mountain bike and now he's the United States' best mountain biker. And Sir Chris Hoy, I don't know if you know the name, but he's England's most decorated Olympic athlete. He has six medals in the velodrome. He's a BMXer as well. So BMX is oftentimes the foundation for a lot of other cycling sports. But then there's just those of us like me who never grow up and get a bigger bike. We stand a little one. Which is interesting because you, I mean, thinking it for me, thinking BMX to velodrome, it couldn't be more different in my eyes. But in some ways it's not, right? I mean, is your... So like your gear is fixed though too, right? It's not, you don't have coaster brakes. You have one, one handbrake, just the rear, I'm assuming on the handbrake. Mm -hmm. So, so in some ways that's similar to the velodrome. But track cycling teams from around the world oftentimes get their starters, their man ones. They hunt them from BMX racing. Because our start of our starting block is very similar to what man one does, which is just sprint as hard as you can for 18 seconds. Coming from a flat ground, they just go, just hammer. And that's essentially what we do. So um, Holland won the gold medal this year in the team sprint at the Olympics in Tokyo. And their man one was the next BMX race. And I mean, USA Cycling has called me and said, if you would like to, you could walk on the team tomorrow. 
but for me, I look at that and I say, so I'm going to do all the work, all the gym, all the dedication, and I don't even get to jump. I just work harder. Like that doesn't sound fun to me. So I think it's teach their own. How does that work? You said in 2005 that BMX was voted into the Olympics and then 2008 was the first games. What is that like coming from part of the appeal for you, right? It's the, it's the bright colors, it's the sponsors, it's being a bit of a renegade to then going to the Olympics. It, or do you have to tone down the renegade part of it? Is it, is it the legitimacy of getting to the Olympics too? How did you view those things? I was 12, so I didn't view much, but there's, there's different, people feel differently about it. A lot of the old school riders, the traditionalists hate that BMX was put in the Olympics. They think that ruined it and that we sold out. And same with skateboarding this time around and surfing this time around. Like a lot of people hate it. It has changed our sport massively because as soon as the Olympics got involved, Olympic, Olympic committees got involved and athletes started to be treated as Olympic athletes and were expected to be on regimented training programs. And they were paid by federations and had to answer to those federations. So it, it did change and evolve. But when I started racing when I was 10 years old, I couldn't get a college scholarship. I couldn't become a, uh, become a member of the national team. And I couldn't go to the Olympics. Because that didn't exist or why couldn't you? It didn't exist. I got a college scholarship and I went to the Olympics. So in my eyes, sure, we had to give up a little bit of our traditional kind of counterculture. But I think the, what we gained is better than what we lost. And at the same time, when you race or ride BMX, nobody forces you to try to go to the Olympics. You can go be as counterculture as you want and be a traditionalist. And there are people out there and they'll scream from the mountaintops how much they hate the Olympics. And that's fine. They're entitled to their opinion. But BMX, one of the things I always said that I enjoy it, and I guess a lot of sports are kind of similar, it's whatever you make it. If you want to ride once a week for fun, ride once a week for fun. If you want to take it seriously, try to go to the Olympics, Try to go Olympics or anything in between. You can do whatever you want. What are the big competing events? I mean, is it like an X Games kind of thing? I mean, what, what's the pinnacle other than the Olympics or potentially in competition to the Olympics? Not really anything. Uh, Olympics is be all end all. Um, if you're a professional and you're trying to make, make a run at it, um, it goes, the Olympics and then from there, the next level down would probably be the World Championships, which are held every July. Um, and then from there would be World Cups, which is a series held around the world every year. And then after that, the next level down would be the USA BMX Championship Series. And pre-Olympics, the USA BMX Championship Series was the be-all, end-all. That's where riders from all over the world would come to compete because you could earn a living. You could be sponsored by bike companies that are based here. The industry is based here. Um, and still today, if you want to make a living at it, you have to compete at the USA BMX series because those are 15 events around the country annually. Whereas if you only did the Worlds, the Olympics, the World Cups, you're competing five times a year and you're not going to earn a living. So you kind of have to do both. Um, but there's really no competition to the Olympics. I mean, there's the Pan American Games here, the European Games, the... Uh, Commonwealth games, things like that. But 
really it's Olympics and, and that encompasses everything else. And from experience, I've won everything it's possible to win in our sport. I would trade every single thing if that meant I could keep my gold medal. Like that's how much more it means. Really? Okay. So it's not as similar in some ways to like snowboarding where, where they were sort of competing, you know, they have like the do tour and the, and the X games and that kind of thing where it's, it's all at a high level, but also a little bit different. And as you said, a little bit more, a little bit more counterculture. When did you start getting good? Cause you said you had great bike handling skills, but you couldn't start. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't even that I couldn't start. I was just small. So I was always, I was always good. I was like fifth to 10th in the country as a kid. But when I was like 15, when I finally hit puberty and I grew and I wasn't competing against athletes that were, I mean, if you look at two 14 year old boys, you could get two completely different guys, right? Like one's a kid, one's a young man. One's got a mustache. One, you know, doesn't even have any hair in their armpits yet. Like if you get these full ranges and I was the second one where I was very young and I just, everybody kept telling me, you'll grow, you'll grow, you'll grow. Just wait, just wait. Dad's six, three, mom's five, nine. Like I've come from a background tall family. And so eventually I hit puberty and all of a sudden now I'm looking eye to eye with my competitors and physically we're even, but I'm technically better. So when I was 15 is kind of when the penny dropped for myself and everybody around like, whoa, this kid's pretty good. That was 2008. Plus you had to learn things the hard way too, right? If you're younger, it's like you have to do all the other things because you don't have just the engine that's going to push you through, right? Correct. I had to learn how to be a scrapper, right? I had to, I had to hunt around just trying to pass people. I had to learn how to ride in, in, from the back of the pack, from the middle of the pack. I had to try to figure out how to beat people who were just bigger and stronger. So it forces you to learn more. And I, I always, you know, I see kids who are winning everything at 10, 11, 12, and that's the worst thing for them because they're only learning to be a one-trick pony. And no matter how good you are, when you hit professional levels, you're not, nobody wins everything. So you have to be able to do it from, from all over. But yeah, so 2008 was kind of a perfect storm because I got good, I started winning, and I watched the 2008 Olympics. And so it all hit at the same time that like, oh my gosh, that's the coolest thing ever. I want to do that. I might actually be good enough. I'm going to try. So the following year, I was uh, 16, it was 2009. Um, that was the minimum age to race a World Cup is 16. And so I raced a World Cup and I set a record that is still standing today for the youngest rider to ever podium at a World Cup. And like, it's not even a contest. Like it's so much younger than anybody ever but when I did that, it was kind of like, and I did it coming from behind because I wasn't as strong as the older riders yet. I started, you know, in seventh, eighth place and just picked people off one by one and was able to go back. And I did that every time all the way to the final to get third. And there's not much space on this track. I mean, like talking about picking people off, that's really hard. It was, but I like, there was a period of time for maybe 2009 to 2012 where like, I think I could safely say that I was like by a lot, the best technical bike rider in the world. Like no one was even close. And so for me at that point, um, I was able to pick the existing riders off so easily, even though they were stronger. And eventually as it always happens in sport, 
other riders got better, the younger generation continued to get better and everything kind of evened out. Um, but there was a period of time where I was just so much better than everybody on the track. And uh, that was kind of... And you knew it. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. I, and I used to tell people, I said, just wait till I ride with them. And it was almost like a running joke. Like, oh yeah, Connor's just talking about how good he is in the track again. But I, I was able to back it up. Um, which was pretty cool um, to do that. And so then after that, everything became like to try to dedicate myself to make it to London. And I was able to qualify at 19 for, for London. You qualified at 19 for London and London. I mean, this is it, right? You'd written on your, on your garage wall that you were going to be number one in the world, that you were going to win a gold medal. And then what happened in London? I went into the event um, as one of the favorites. I won my quarterfinals. I won my semifinals. I was in the pole position. I was in the number one seed. Like if you go on YouTube and you watch the video, the commentator says, I think Connor's going to win. Like the odds makers, I'm I'm from Las Vegas. So, um, you know, my friends were placing bets on me. I was the favorite. And I just didn't execute. I got ahead of myself. I just was thinking about the win instead of thinking about what I had to do to get there. Thinking about having a good start, thinking about having a good drive, thinking about having a good, you know, hit my marks, having a good lap. I just was thinking about, I was already thinking about the party. I had already won. So I ended up choking essentially and got seventh. And, um, and that was tough, right? Like you put, and at the time, you don't have the life experience that you do when you're 30, when you're 19 years old. Like you think the sun's not going to come up tomorrow and you're never going to be the same. And, you know, it's it your life's a failure because you messed up this race. Well, and, and some of those, those defeats are the things that have defined you, right? Because you're something similar, but yet different at the world juniors too, right? Where you were the guy, three bike lengths, you're out there to win, but you were trying to break the course record and win the race. And sometimes it's like, is it just winning the race or is it like changing history? that was a lesson, right? Like, and I think as you're a young athlete, you have to learn these lessons. Sometimes you can learn them by people telling you them. Other ways, other times you got to learn it the hard way. And for me, winning wasn't enough. Like it was already a written foregone conclusion. I was going to win in my mind. I didn't want to just win. I wanted to put an exclamation point on it, put a stamp on it and, and show this when I was a junior. I wanted to show the elites that I was coming. And like, I think back at that now, like, that's so silly. Like, who cares if my time's 10 seconds slower than the elites if I win? Like, that's all that matters. But at that time, I did like going into that race, it wasn't a question if I was going to win. Like, it was that if I could beat the elites record and let them know that I was caught, which is so silly. But I learned that lesson and that I had to learn it the hard way. And after that, I learned that after that, like the lesson stuck with me forever get out in front and then just ride a comfortable pace, do what you have to do to stay there. You don't need to send any messages winning by a foot or by 10 bike lengths is all the same. Just be smooth. And I, I never again did that happen. Not once was I in front and over tried and made a mistake. I, in my whole career got past in a final two or three times. Like I was so good when I was out in front and I credit that to, having to learn it the hard way but um but yeah so that was in 2010 which shows you what my mindset would have been going into 2012 as well it was it was a foregone conclusion that i was going to win i was going to win it's all just part of the plan i was going to win instead of just taking it one step at a time as you 
learn is the right thing to do when you get older. What did you have to do when that plan didn't work? Picking up the pieces after London. Yeah, it's really hard. And so the hardest thing I think for me was just that like, I didn't know if I could trust myself. Like, what happens if I get back into this position again? Can I do it? Can I execute it? And so between London and Rio, you know, there's the World Cups, there's the World Championships. And every chance I got, I tried to put myself back in the, in the pole position to put myself as the number one seed. And I was like 50-50. Sometimes I would do it and sometimes I wouldn't. And the times I wouldn't do it, it wasn't that I wasn't fast enough to. It was just that mentally I didn't know how to handle those moments. So what it essentially came down to for me was second guessing whether or not I could execute and I could do it. Um, but I also had the courage to keep putting myself back in that position of doing it because a lot of athletes, and I'm sure it'd be like this in other sports, but in my sport, a lot of athletes will make a mistake when they're in the pole position and then they'll just avoid that. They won't take it even if they have the option to do it because they don't want to put themselves in that position. I just kept saying like every chance I get put me in that position, I need to learn how to do it. And so I had ups and downs. Like I won the world cup series in 2013. Awesome. I whole shot and I was leading the world championships in 2014 and I bumped me another rider bumped into each other and he was able to pass me. So I came just short of winning a world championships in 2014. So like I was going through all these ups and downs in between those years, but it all, in my opinion, kind of led to like when I got back into that moment in Rio, like I was prepared for it because I had experienced the range. Like I had won, I had lost, and I felt like I knew what I needed to do when I got back into that moment in Rio. And so when I got back into that moment in Rio, I was able to execute to the best of my abilities. And from that moment on, I never doubted myself again. And for the next five years, I guess, before Tokyo, every single time I got into that like crunch time position, I never made a mental error. I was beat, but if I was beat, it was because somebody was better than me, not because I didn't ride to the best of my abilities. And so I guess what I'm most thankful for and proud of is that I kept trying. And eventually I made that breakthrough where a lot of athletes aren't even willing to put themselves in that position where they may be able to make that breakthrough. Right. You kept putting yourself in the position, the pole position where you're the number one seed, you're the person who should win. So you put yourself in the position where you should win, which, because the games are a little bit different too. I mean, even though you're competing against the same people on the World Cup, it's not quite exactly, or even the World Championships, it's not quite exactly the same as when you get to the Olympics and all the eyes are on you, all the television, four years have been building up to this. But going into Rio, you had practiced for the games. We also broke your wrist right before it. So then did that change your mindset as you're going in injured and you're not necessarily, you might not have necessarily been going in, in the pole position kind of role? Yeah. Um, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad I broke my wrist because it had a happy ending and it might've been what helped, but it did change my mindset and that I was just happy to be there because there was times when I wasn't sure if I was going to be there. It came down basically to the Olympic trials and the way our team selection works. One rider gets taken off of rankings. One rider gets taken off of the, whoever wins the trials. The third rider is the coach's pick. Like the 
committee selection. I had to have this one guy had to win the trials for me to be the third guy. And he ended up winning. But there was weeks where I was like, if he doesn't win, like, I'm not going to go. And so you couldn't compete then. You were still I couldn't recovering. Compete. I was in a cast. So I had to watch. And so for me, what it, it just came down to was like, when he won, I was like, probably just as excited as him because I mean, I was going to. I was like, woo, I'm going to the Olympics now. So good job, man. You got me on the team. Yeah. Yeah. The ironic thing too is like, we're huge rivals. Like, I, this is probably the first time I've ever rooted for him in my life. Um, but when I ended up just going, the mindset was like, I'm just happy to be here and a medal would be a bonus. Like that would just be gravy on top. I get a shot. Like, I'm just happy that I get the shot. Whereas pre-wrist injury, I was always going to get a shot and it was like winter bust. Now I was just happy to have the shot, which probably did take some pressure off me and help me out a little bit. Um, so that was cool. How did it go? Because then I would imagine you're getting into the semifinals and all of this. And, and there's the physical part of like, am I okay? It, don't, don't crash, don't hurt your wrist, that kind of thing. How did that work as you were leading up to the finals in Rio? And I essentially just made the mind, made my mind up that I'm, I'm willing to risk it for this event and only this event. I mean, the Olympics comes around once every four years. If it was any other event, I'm not risking it, but this might be my final shot. And I don't want to live the rest of my life, not knowing if I even tried. Um, so physically, I mean, I didn't care. Like I, I essentially just got to the point where I was like, I'm okay. If I break my wrist trying, like, I'm just going to try. So in a weird kind of messed up way, I was okay with it. Um, and then it just came down to step one was to get back into the final. And then my only thing, like my only goal was at the end of the day, I want to look in the mirror when I'm brushing my teeth that night and know that I did my best. And if that means that I got fifth place, that's okay doesn't mean you're happy with it. You could be bummed, but at the end of the day, knowing you gave it hundred percent, there's nothing you can lay in bed at night thinking I should have done this, should have done that, should have done this, should have done that. That was my only goal because I couldn't do that in London. And I spent years reliving that moment saying I should have done this, I should have done that, should have done this, should have done that. So that was my only goal was just to have no regrets, like just give it everything I have. But I also believe that if I did that, I had a shot. So the two were kind of hand in hand. So you made it to the finals. What happened in the finals? Where were you seated? All of those kinds of things. I was after the, so our semis are run over a best of three format. After the first two semis, I was a two seed. Um, in the third semifinal, I kind of had a collision with another racer. We didn't crash or anything, but it slowed us down. So that affected my seating. I was the sixth seed on this one. Um, kind of the opposite of the pole position. And what I just reminded myself as I went into that moment was it doesn't matter where you're seated because there's no guarantee that the riders that are in the better positions, the pole, the second, the third, I was in the pole last time and I got seventh. The guy who won was the three seat. Like everybody's got a shot now. It's all, everything that happened before this is wiped off the table. So that was kind of the mindset going in and um i was just able to execute and i was in second place after the first corner 
but my teammate was in front of me. It was the other American. Hold on, was this the guy who who won to to get you onto the team? No, it was the other guy. He it was the first guy. Okay. The the guy who won was eliminated in the semifinals. Um, so the other guy was leading, and like in BMX racing, anything can happen. And right? so like you're nervous to pass somebody because you could crash yourself, you could crash them, or the worst case, you could crash your boat. So now I'm sitting here, I'm like, do I try to pass my teammate who's also happens to be my friend? And now I run the risk of crashing myself out of the race, him out of the race, or the absolute like, worst case, both of us. And now I'm the reason why the U.S. went from gold, silver to nothing. But, I mean, I really didn't even blink. I didn't care. Like, I was like, uh, I could have been my own mom in front of me. Like, I was going for it. Um, and I was able to pass him without affecting his race or mine. And basically, we swapped positions and... Um, Everything was fine. I took Where did you pass him? How did you? Because I'm imagining you're setting this up, right? You, so you started sixth out of eight. You're second in the first corner. And then and then I imagine you're thinking, okay, now it's how do I set it up? Where am I going to pass? How am I going to get past him? Uh, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I had more pace than him. So I just had to kind of wait. I tried in the second section, second straight away, and I wasn't able to get around him. And I tried to get in the third straightaway, and then he made a small mistake when he saw me coming. And then with his mistake combined with I had more pace, I was just able to kind of just ride right by him. And then that was it. And then then you you held him off. Was he able to 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 you know put another charge in at the he finish? Made, he started making more mistakes, and that's just like I, guess, I would assume in other sports when when you make one mistake, the key is not to let it snowball into multiple. Unfortunately for him, he let his one mistake snowball into multiple to where he was passed in the third in the final turn. And then he was having a drag race to the finish line with another rider and they photo finished the third. There was a brief moment at the finish line where everybody celebrated because they thought they were going to split the bronze medal. And then about 10 minutes later, it went to a photo and the photo revealed that the Colombian actually got it. So he got fourth. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Which, I mean, for you in a lot of ways, I mean, who knows how things would have gone if, if you hadn't passed him or whatever. But, you know, I mean, you can never, you can speculate about these things and talk about it all day long, but likelihood of you being right isn't always that great too. Right. Well, and, and I also, I'm, I'm biased on this one, but I also think it's the best race in BMX history because at the highest level, which is the Olympics, six of the eight riders held a medal position at one point. Wow. So at one point in the race, six of them, there's only two riders that did not sit in the top three positions at one point. Wow. And that's, that's unusual though. I would imagine Very. for BMX race to have that much change at the front of the race. And of the, all, all six of those riders at one point, except for me. So five of them at one point held the bronze medal position. Hmm. So it was pretty crazy. What was it like for you to cross the finish line? It was like half shock, half excitement. Um, I mean, you think about that moment all the time, and then it finally happens, and then you're just like trying to pinch yourself like, is this real? But it was cool. Um, and for me, I was I always say it's like the ultimate way for me to say thank you to my friends, family, coaches, supporters, everybody who helped me get to this point. Because now, like, we all won this together, and like, we did it all that sacrifice and all that hard work was worth it. We won the Olympics. 
And so I celebrated with my coach and my training partners and my family, like right there at the finish line. And uh, that was the coolest thing. And that graffiti on the garage wall was, was that forgiven then? Uh, yeah, my parents moved out of that house like three, four years ago, and they cut that piece of the wall out and actually gifted it to me. So you have it framed. What you're, how old were you? 12 when you did that? Nine? 15. 15. Okay. Okay. So I don't have a frame. It's just sitting, it's sitting right next to the gold medal in my like trophy area. <laughs> Which they're, they're probably of equal value in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, they're cool. It's, um, you know, I, every major achievement starts with the idea that that's what you want, whether it's you becoming a doctor or opening a business, becoming an Olympian, whatever it is, you have to make up your mind that that's what you want to do. And so for me, it was like, I very clearly made it in my mind that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't make it easy on myself. I set a really hard goal. Um, you know, I didn't, didn't set myself a goal like, oh, graduate college. Like hundreds of thousands of people do that every year. Um, and that's a huge accomplishment. I set a goal that one in 22 million people get. And so it's pretty cool to, to be able to kind of have this, the beginning and then the culmination. And one in 22 million win a gold medal. So that's the odds if you take the number of Olympic gold medals in the human population. Right. Exactly. So now you did one games where you were pole position and it didn't and it didn't work out. You ended up seventh. Another games where you were you started sixth and ended up winning. So then you should have it all figured out now, right? Go into your third games. You would think. And um, I was actually even part of a study after Rio that Team USA did um, trying to figure out how they can better prepare athletes for their first games because my story is such a common occurrence where athletes struggle at their first games and then fix their mistakes in second games and do well at their second Olympics because they've got the experience. So I was part of a study i was interviewed by a number of psychologists of like what can we do to better equip the athletes for their first games um because it is easier once you've been once you have the experience once you know what you're getting into but yeah as i got ready for tokyo i was like oh yeah this will be easy i've had the whole spectrum you've had the whole spectrum so what was tokyo like where you did did everything go according to plan approaching the games I mean, other than COVID and COVID, things like that. Post, the postponement and all that. But yes, eliminating that stuff. Yeah, I was in great shape. I won a bunch of races leading up to it. I was national champion. I was you know, leading points in the series we raced here. I mean, everything was, was clicking. Um, great shape. Felt comfortable on the bike. I knew it was going to be hard, but I knew I had a shot. And at the end of the day, I, I believed that put me in that position in the final and I'll execute. Like I had full comfort in knowing that doesn't mean I wouldn't have been nervous. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have been, you know, feeling the pressure, but I knew when push came to shove and it was time to execute start, that I could. So that gave me a little bit of calmness going in. And so it was like, just get to that final and then you know what to do. Kind and of was that really it? Just get to the final. You weren't concerned about where you were going to be seated. You had enough confidence in yourself that wherever you were on the line, you were going to be able to make, you were going to be able to do what you needed to do. I mean, is that partially from having had to do it so 
in, in such a difficult manner as a smaller kid growing up? Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, you'd want to be wherever you like to be in the starting gate, whether that's the inside, the middle, the outside. If you're the number one seed, you have first choice of your starting block. You can go wherever you want. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's obviously what you want. But what I've learned at the previous Olympics is that going into Tokyo, one out of the three times did the number one seed win. So I looked at it, and, and at that point, somebody had won from the inside, the middle, and then I won from the outside. So it, in theory, it was completely even. So what I, I wanted, I knew where I wanted to be, but I wasn't so married to that idea. And this is a mistake I've made in other races of my career. So married to being in a certain position that as soon as you don't get that position, it ruins your whole day because you had planned on being in that position. So step one is to get to the finals. And then if you're in the finals, it's eight racers. You've got one race. And if you beat five of them, you go home with a trophy. And so you just got step one is to get out of your quarterfinals. Step two is to make it through the semifinals and then you can worry about the main. But just like in London, I didn't want to be worried about the main, worried about the medal before I was even in the quarterfinals. And things were going well, though, in qualifying, getting to the finals. Yeah, I won my quarterfinals. I was the one, I was the number one seed out of those as we entered the following day with the semifinals. It was two heats of eight and the top four of each would go. Um, so going into the second day, I, I knew I had a shot. I mean, I knew I would just have to ride smart in those three semifinals, put myself in the final, and then just go. And if you think about a BMX race, there's eight races in the starting line, you can kind of always expect one or two riders are going to completely mess up the start. Uh, one or two riders are going to get cut off by the rider next to them. And so I knew if I had a good start, I'd at minimum be in third or fourth place and be in the mix and have a shot. So like in real simple terms, that's kind of how I approached it. So simple terms, that's how you approached it. And then what happened? First semifinal, I finished third. Second semifinal, I won. So it's like best of three over points. So I was pretty, like not, there was a mathematical scenario where if like this guy won and this guy got second and this guy got third, and I got eighth, that I would lose my spot. Plus you're racing for your starting position seat. Your third semifinal is your starting seat. So, you know, people have asked, like, why did you even race that? Well, there's two reasons. One, mathematically, I wasn't clinched. And had I just rolled around and taken the eighth place and then the exact scenario happened, I would have, you know, been bummed about that forever. Right. Two, I wanted to control where I was in the starting line. I don't want last pick because last pick is always going to end up being the place that nobody wants to go, right? Maybe that's in between two of the other best racers. Maybe that's on the far outside. You know, maybe that's in the place where there's a little bit of like some misshapen stuff on the jump or whatever it is. Like it's the place where no one wants to go. So you don't want that. But in that third semifinal, um, there was a French rider and he just came over from the outside. And I think he just misjudged where we were in relation to each other. And he bumped me and it uh, set me to the ground and I, smashed into the ground face first going 40 miles an hour and i uh had the worst injury of the tokyo games and one of the worst in summer olympic history which and, and it happened just in a moment right i mean it's one of those that you probably because you don't remember i have no memory of the whole day right um had i been two inches farther back or two inches farther forward would nothing would have happened had I, 
my start, my start was good, but had it been a little worse, I'd been fine. Had he decided that he only wanted to move over to this section of the track, nothing would have happened. It was a perfect marriage of everything that had to go wrong, but at the same time, a perfect marriage of everything that went right that I am able to sit here today and be okay and talk to you. Because a couple things change and I never crashed. A couple things change and I'm dead on the track, on impact. So it's just a crazy like butterfly effect of what could have been different. But this was a massive head injury, right? Brain injury and brain injuries are just so hard in that you don't really know what's going to happen. There's such a variety of, of responses to a brain injury. Essentially what happened is when I hit, I hit on this part right here is where I hit. And so then my brain inside my head went bang on the front, bang on the side. And so I um, had four brain bleeds instantly. Um, I was completely unconscious. I stopped breathing when I was down there. They had to create an airway and intubate me. Um, and you know, at that point in time, they weren't concerned because first thing you were worried about is if you're conscious, I had a collapsed lung, I had broken ribs, I had torn ligaments. I was covered head to toe in cuts and, and scrapes. Um, and yeah, I have no memory, but from what I've been told, it wasn't good. And anytime I talk to like a neurologist or an expert and I tell them what happened, like all the fancy words of exactly what I had, um, they're all like, wow, like, the fact that you're okay is incredible. Um, but yeah, it's like just in a heartbeat, everything changed. And my biggest fear of not getting a medal was now dwarfed. And I talked to my wife about it when she saw me crash. Her first thought was, and she saw you from home, though, right? Home. Because she wasn't there. She was watching it on television. Yeah, no thousands of miles away. No one was allowed. So her first thing was, crap, he's going to have a bad gate selection. And then it went to, crap, he's not getting up. Maybe he's hurt and he won't be able to race the final. And then it was, oh, my God, he hasn't moved in three minutes. Is he okay? So it was like this. And it, was, it would have been the same for me watching it. It was like this changing spectrum, perspective. Yeah. Your perspective changes. It's, oh, he's going to have a bad gait selection. Oh, maybe he's broken his collarbone. He can't race. How much is that going to stink if he can't race the, the final? To, oh, my God, I hope he's alive. Like, just, and then they have no way to reach me. Nobody knows what's going on. And so I couldn't even imagine what that was like for them. And then that's the risk, right? I mean, because you go through and it's, it's okay, you know, Connor might not live. And, and, and so then they got you stabilized. But then there's the uncertainty of how is, the, how is his brain going to react? How is your brain going to react to what happened? And how did, how did that play out? Because you didn't know anything. Right. I mean, it were, I mean, you were effectively like in a coma, right? So I wasn't in a coma, but I was just essentially sleeping all day, every day. And they would have to come and like, like shake me to rouse me to wake me up. Um, and then they would ask me, what's your name? And I would know my name and then I'd just fall back asleep. And so they were kind of doing that a couple of times a day. And I essentially slept for five days. Um, and they, 
put my phone by my bed and just told my family, like, hey, he's going to wake up at some point. He might call. We have no idea what to expect when he reaches out. Now, you, you FaceTimed with your wife, right? Which I, which I thought was kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing because, you know, with head injuries, oftentimes they're telling you to stay away from screens and, and these kinds of things. Did you just decide that you were going to FaceTime with her? And was that, or was that an effort to sort of say, I'm okay? Or how, does, well, how do you reconstruct that in your mind? I mean, when I woke up, I, I was by myself and I didn't have anybody who spoke English. There was the doctors, the American doctors, but they didn't sit by my bed 24 hours a day. So unless they happened, I have to wake up when they were there, like I was going to be alone. So they left the phone there because it's like when, it, when a head injury, someone has a head injury, when they wake up, they're just trying to, the, by they, I mean, the neurologists, the doctors, they're trying to figure out what does he remember? What does he know? How much is he affected by this? And so they wanted me to reach out because then people, it would start to paint a picture of where I was at. Did I think it was 2015? You know, did I know I was in Tokyo? Did I remember the last six months? Like we just didn't know what was going to happen. And so when I called her, um, I definitely was a bit like 10 second Tom from uh, 51st date. So I had some short term memory loss. I didn't realize it. This is from her telling me, but like, I remembered, I was in Tokyo. I remembered that I missed our vacation that we had planned. I mean, I remembered pretty much everything outside of the time around the injury that I had missing. Um, Those so five was, days kind of thing. Yeah. So that was the best first sign is that like I had my memory. I remember the, my third grade teacher's name. I remember where I spent my summer. I remember, you know, how I met my wife. I, I remembered everything minus those days. And now the was entire- Was coached like, up? Was your wife coached up to ask you these kinds of questions? Like about your third grade teacher? Or? No, I tested myself. Okay. I remember vividly like testing myself, trying to like see if I could remember stuff. And I could. But she, uh, she was a, not coach, but she just said, hey, let's see what he comes out with, see what he, where he's at. Um, but yeah, and then essentially like the entire year of 2021 is a little bit of a blur to me. Like I remember where I was that summer and how training camp went and what was going on and who I was with and what we were doing. But it, it's almost a little bit like it, it was 10 years ago. Like the way that my memory feels, it feels like it was 10 years ago, not last summer. What was the recovery part of it like like it sounds like it was best case scenario coming out of the, those five days but there were other things that were difficult right both on the mental and the and the physical side of the recovery I mean, you go in as fit as you can be and then suddenly you're you're starting over what was what was that like yeah so what was tough about the whole thing is i was in japan so the first step was to get me home and get to a point where I was like safe to get on an airplane and fly home. So that was like eight days later, you know, after being in the hospital and getting to a point where like all the doctors were comfortable with putting me on an airplane 
over the Pacific Ocean where I wasn't going to be available. And I had to fly home with a athletic trainer who took my blood pressure and, you know, was looking at my health every hour. So then I got home and then the next day went straight to the University of Utah to their brain rehabilitation center. And then it was like three, four hours of testing to figure out where I was deficient to what was happening. And then once we found all that out, then it was, okay, here's your rehabilitation protocols. Here's what you got to do. Here's your appointments. Here's what you got to see. And, um, you know, for me, the first things that come back were physical. I didn't damage any parts of my brain that are directly in control of like your arms, or your legs, or your, your taste, your smell, or anything like that. But what I had major issues with was processing speed, problem solving, uh, my filter, um, speech, things like that was, was hard. And so every day it was different appointments to address. What, is, what does that mean specifically? You, you have problems with speed, like, like in terms of moving quickly or things no, moving no. quickly? Cognitively. Cognitively moving. Okay. You would tell me a joke and it would take me 10 seconds to work out what punchline was in my head and then laugh. Okay. I guess the best way to describe it is just slow. Or like one of the exercises I was doing was they would give me a three word sentence. It would be like, you know, I am Connor. And then they would say, give it to me backwards. And it'd be Connor am I, but it, it would take me a long time to take the sentence and then work out how it would go the other way. Or like they would give me a crossword puzzle that was like fifth grade level. And it would take me 20 minutes to do a crossword puzzle. And the words were like chair. TV, lamp, things like that. And it took me forever to figure that out. Wow. And you said that also you got super fatigued, right? So you might be able to do that crossword puzzle easily in the morning, but then not at night. That was a little bit later on. I mean, my okay. fatigue was the whole time. But as I improved, the final thing to come back was the ability to have energy to, to use my brain all day. The best way I would describe that, so I mean, my fatigue initially was, terrible i slept 16 hour nights and then i would be up for four hours take a nap up for four hours take a nap then back to bed like i would just sleep all day but that's what you want because that's when your brain's healing right. um as i got to like month two month three the best way i would describe it is imagine if you go to sleep and you don't charge your phone at night and you wake up and you've got 30 percent battery and you got to go your normal work day with that phone at 30 percent battery your phone will work great till noon and then it's dead and you have no more fun. And so that was the best way that I would describe it is like, I would, it would work well when I would wake up, but it would just die. My brain would just stop working. And eventually it got to where my phone was at 30%, 40%, 50%. And I could get to later on in the day. And that was kind of the final thing that came back was that it was like 9 PM and I was still as sharp and quick witted as I was at 9 AM was kind of the final thing where I was like, okay, we're good. Like I was having, to, if I wanted to go to lunch with a friend or go see a friend, we had to do lunch because if we tried to go to dinner, I would be completely useless. Interesting. I mean, it sounds, it sounds miraculous, your recovery. I mean, given, given the accident, you also said that you approached it the same way that you approached your recovery, the same way that you had approached your preparation for your sport. 
What was the impression of the doctors, of the people around you looking at your recovery? Yeah, I think first off with the head injury, there's a whole lot of unknowns. Um, I'm not an expert on it, on either head injury, and I don't know much about spinal cord injuries either, but I imagine they're pretty similar where they know some stuff, but for everything that they know, they don't know equally just as much. There are always exceptions to the rule, sure. So when I got hurt, the first question that myself and everybody around me was asked is, is he going to make it for recovery? Is he going to be okay? And the thing they kept saying is, we don't know. All we can do is tell you what we think he should be doing to give himself the best chance. And so what ended up happening, happening was as I continued to get better, my natural instincts and my personality kind of started to come out again. And so after about six weeks, because the first six weeks I was not myself, like I was, I'm thankful that I didn't say anything too bad on social media or online because I, I was not thinking. Um, but as I you began your right of, mind, really, I mean, is what it comes no, down to. Yeah. No, I mean, I said some things to some people that like I would never say. The best way I describe it is imagine the first thought that pops in your head, every situation you just say, it. Right. no matter how inappropriate, no matter how much you shouldn't say it, we have the filter on, like our brains are working. So, you know, we know that when we see that person walk in and we absolutely hate their shirt, we're not just going to say, I hate your shirt because we know that's not the right thing to do, but I would have just said it and I wouldn't have realized that I was doing anything wrong. Right. Um, but as my, my recovery continued and as I began to feel more like myself, I started to behave in the normal way that I would behave. And that meant that, okay, I'm hurt. Well, what can I do to get better? And then doing extensive research on how to get better and then going the extra mile to do it. You don't become an Olympic gold medalist by doing the bare minimum of practice. You become an Olympic gold medalist by going above and beyond every single day for years on end. Like that's how you do it. And so I went about my recovery in the same way where I spent five hours every single day for months doing everything that I possibly could for recovery. I changed my diet completely. Um, I eliminated certain foods. I didn't touch alcohol. I, I didn't eat processed sugar. I ate excessive amounts of pumpkin seeds, walnuts, omegas, I mean, I, I went nuts and my thought process was if there's ever been anything to dedicate yourself to, this is, this is probably it. Um, but I just want to have no regrets to where however far I was able to advance my recovery, I would never look back and think, man, I really wish I would have done a little bit more. How much does that time shape who you are right now and how you approach problems and challenges and dreams? You know, I don't know if it's necessarily that time. I think that's just me as a person. Like, that's just how I, if I'm doing something, I'm doing it all the way. If it's uh, sport, if it's me one day when I'm a father, if it's me training for uh, a marathon, whatever it is. I mean, we, you can, my speaking engagement the other day, like if I'm going to speak, I'm going to approach my speaking at a hundred percent. This is how I am. And it's double-edged sword because I don't do well at just being relaxed and taking things easy. You know, we're at trivia night and I'm like studying, I'm like studying the day before for trivia night. You know, that's like so ridiculous, <laughs> but that's just how I am. What about risk? So, so you look at this, you, you won a gold medal. 
you're at the very, very top of your sport, a risk-taking sport. You had this horrific injury. And then also now you're coaching kids in the sport of BMX. How do you look at the risk and the trade-off? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, I had a really good conversation with a friend of mine who had a spinal cord injury. And, um, and what he said really stuck with me. When, when he was in rehabilitation, he, he was, became friends with another guy in rehab who was sitting at a stoplight and there was a car accident in front of him at the stoplight and a piece of shrapnel hit him in the head and caused him a spinal cord injury. He was just sitting in a convertible. And there was another guy there and there's another story, but it was something similar to that where he did nothing wrong, wasn't taking any risk, just happened to get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and have a life-changing injury. But you also said from your final in Rio that four of eight of you had had traumatic brain injuries or, or three- Some, like, a light, like a life-altering injury. Yeah. 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 So- before I get to that, I guess what I was going to say is like, life is not without risk. I think calculated risk is what you have to, to, to look at is what are you okay with? And so for me, I've never been a big risk taker outside of BMX. Like I'm really not, which is ironic. Like if I'm, you know, I, I enjoy snowboarding, but I take it very slow. I just do my thing. You know, I'm not, I have nothing to prove. And then even on the racing, I was never known as a risk taker. Like I wasn't sending jumps just for the fun of it. You know, I, I did what I had to do to win and then I just left it at that. Um, but I guess for me, like moving forward is like, I went mountain biking this morning for an hour and a half. And as soon as I got to the point where I was feeling like I was going a little bit faster than I wanted to go, I just slowed down. And so it's like, I have a, a limit of how much risk I'm willing to accept and I will not go past it. Um, and that's how I plan to live my life. Like, I'm not going to lock myself in a bubble. And you can relate to this. I'm not going to lock myself in a bubble and, and, and stay perfectly safe. Like, we could get in a car accident. We could, you know, get hit by a tree that's falling over because it got struck by lightning, which has almost happened to me. A piece of lightning struck like 10 feet from me and a tree knocked over right in front of me. But... With that said, yeah, to, to go on what you're saying, there was four of the eight riders in the Rio final had career-ending injuries. Myself, um, there was another athlete who had a spinal cord injury that, um, you know, in some ways could have been prevented, um, you know, thinking back. Another one had a traumatic brain injury, complete freak accident, like never should have happened. Wrong place, wrong time, bit of bad luck wasn't really his fault um and then the other one was while he was competing so it's like they all we all had these these accidents but we've all a couple things changed and these accidents don't happen and how many other times could a couple things have changed for people all over the world and they would have had this type of accident it's an interesting question, right? Because the idea of you can't prepare for a freak accident. And I mean, the guy who's sitting there in the convertible who, who gets hit by shrapnel, you, you can't prepare for that. 
it, things weird weird things happen but also there are sports that we're involved in and and you and I are involved in sports where there is that risk i mean there is that thought as you approach the the starting gate the starting line whatever it is that you know hey if things go badly they could go they could go badly what's the message because risk is risk is something that's so important for all of us like in terms of in, in terms of our sport but in terms of our lives in terms of taking the risk to live fully what's the message that you're giving to these kids that you're coaching regarding a sport that can be potentially potentially dangerous um to be honest they don't ask me about risk but the way that i approach it and the way that i teach is develop the skills and don't try stuff that you're not ready to try and that goes for anything gymnastics bmx skiing literally every sport develop your skills know where you're at and don't try things that you're just not ready for and so i when i'm coaching if i tell somebody to do something it's because i believe that they 99 will be okay to do it um but if they say i don't know if i want to do that then i say don't do it because that I'm never going to force anybody to do anything that they don't want to do. Um, Plus they have to be committed to it. They're less likely yeah. to get hurt if they're committed to executing. Exactly. So interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's been, it's been such an interesting journey for you to, you know, to, I think in some ways see such great success, but then also sort of see your mortality in this, in this crash, see, you know, see your, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're susceptible to, you know, to whatever in, in some of the other games, you know, in, in London and that kind of stuff. I would imagine that for you, you have so much to give to, to the kids. Do you really enjoy the coaching part? Yeah, I do. I, uh, it takes me back to my roots, right? Like nobody starts in this, even today with BMX being in the Olympics, Nobody picks up a bike and goes and races their first time with the idea that I want to be an Olympian or I want to be a pro. Kids start riding because it's fun and because they smile and because they like the feeling of the wind in their face and they like the feeling of catching air. So it kind of brings me back to that. But at the same time, it, it, I have learned so much. I mean, I don't think there, there's very many people in, in life. I mean, there are, there's people out there, but not very many people that have experienced the literal highest of highs and the literal lowest of lows and everything that fills in between. And so I, it, it, I love giving back. I feel like I do have a lot to give, both on the, the X's and O's coaching side, but just in the general coaching side, um, just because I've been through it. And if I can share with you a lesson that I learned the hard way and save you learning the hard way, then uh, that'd be awesome. Right. And hey, go have fun. This is a fun sport too. I mean, which is probably the most important lesson that you can yeah, give. For sure. Yeah. Connor, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a total pleasure. And I've learned a ton about BMX and I've become a fan in, uh, in doing some research about this. So thank you. Awesome. I'm glad you have. And, uh, yeah, it's a, I'm biased, but it's the most exciting event in summer games. Yeah, I'm I'm going to watch it through that lens now. Just just how how demanding it is physically, mentally, and technically. Well, hey, thanks a ton. 
To those of you who have tuned in, we hope that you've enjoyed it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, to tell your friends to tune in, to like us, to follow us. And we will come back next week with another great guest. So we'll see you then. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whiteout Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.